Michael, it's time now to be getting it ready, and, and uh, absolutely, it's that time of year. We're continuing in our series of messages. We, we started this at the very beginning of the year, and we're going all the way to Easter Sunday, and we're, we're hitting on the main themes uh, that are found in the Bible. And so here the last week or two, uh, and today we're, we're kind of hovering right in the Gospels at this particular junction in time, and in particular, obviously, talking about Jesus. The reality of the matter is, little is told us about Jesus' younger years. We, we don't know uh, much. Uh, we do know that uh, Joseph took Mary and baby Jesus, and they... They went down to uh, Egypt, you know, because of Herod's decree. Joseph had been warned in a dream that Herod was uh, going to do something really nasty, and sure enough, he did. He, in that region, he killed off all the male uh, children two years and younger. Uh, so we know that little bit uh, of Jesus when he was real young. We also get a little glimpse of Jesus when he was 12 years old. You know, every, every year Passover time, his family would travel to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover, and they didn't do that just as a family unit. Apparently, they traveled with numerous other people um, as well, maybe relatives, maybe just friends, maybe a combination of both, most likely. But on this one particular occasion, the year that Jesus was 12 years old, they went to Jerusalem, and then after the Passover, they were headed back home, the Scripture says. And apparently, Mary and Joseph thought that Jesus was somewhere in the caravan of people that was traveling. Uh, probably figured he was hanging out with some of the kids his age or something or other. But lo and behold, they eventually discovered that Jesus is not with them. And so they go back to Jerusalem to look for Jesus, and it takes them a while Here's what the scripture says in Luke chapter 2. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of teachers, both listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. So we get that little glimpse of Jesus. So one glimpse of when he was like somewhere under two years of age, and, and then this other glimpse of when he was 12 years old, but that's about it. I mean, the next thing we end up seeing is the beginning of his ministry. Luke chapter 3 records it this way. Jesus was about 30 years old when he began his public ministry. So we kind of have a, a, you know, an idea of how old Jesus was when he began his ministry. The scripture doesn't really tell us exactly how old he was like when he was crucified and when all of that took place, but scholars in studying that and seeing the various references, uh, different places in the Gospels to the Passover and all of that, estimate that it was three years, three to three and a half years is how long this public ministry that Luke is referring to here, you know, played out. Three and a half years approximately. What did he do during that time? Well, the scripture tells us that right after his baptism, this is what he started engaging in. It says Jesus was going all over Galilee, 
teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and, and healing every disease and sickness among the people. Teaching, preaching, and healing. Now, among the things that he was preaching about, the good news of the kingdom, well, he was also preaching along the lines of something Kurt was talking about a few Sundays ago in the message entitled The Prophets. You might recall that message really centered in on repentance and that the message you find throughout the Old Testament is God, through his spokesman of the day, whichever spokesman it was, is that people were being called to turn from their sin and turn toward God. Well, that wasn't just an Old Testament message. We see the last of the Old Testament prophets actually at the beginning of the New Testament. A fellow named John, we typically refer to him as John the Baptist, and that is his message, a message of repentance. However, if you look in this same chapter of Matthew chapter 4 and you just back up six verses, you go to verse 17 and you'll see that in the beginning of Jesus' preaching, he also was preaching a message of repentance, calling people to turn away from sin and to turn toward God. But, you know, he kind of hands that baton on to his own disciples, the apostles, and after the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, you see that this message continues in passages like Acts chapter 2, verse 38, where it says, Repent and be baptized, and you'll receive the forgiveness of your sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit. Or in Acts chapter 3, verse 14, where it says, Repent so that times of refreshing may come. So, so this particular theme of preaching is one that you find all through the Bible. And it still is a relevant theme for today that we need to turn from our sin. We need to turn toward the Lord, turn to the Lord. Now, what I want to do today is I want to talk in particular about some of Jesus's teaching. You know, as this passage says, that this was one of the things that he was doing is he was taking advantage of opportunities to teach in synagogues and obviously in other locations other than just synagogues. Now, we're not going to do a detailed study. We don't have enough time to do a detailed study, but hopefully we'll do just enough to whet your appetite to where you will want to spend a little more time in the gospel accounts and reading and studying some of Jesus's Teaching. So let me start off by saying this. Jesus used multiple techniques in his teaching. He didn't just teach in lecture form to people. He used a variety of other forms. For example, he shocked people with hyperboles. Hyperboles are exaggerations that are being made in order to grab people's attention. They're, they're statements that are, are shocking you know, to people. The classic example of this, at least the immediate one that I think of, is found in one location of Mark chapter 9, and it says this, if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than to have two feet and be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and to be thrown into hell. Now, obviously, Jesus is trying to get across that sin is a big deal. Sin is not something you want to be toying around with. 
you want to you want as as much as possible to get as much distance between you and sin as possible and so he he uses uh, some of these hyperboles about well if your foot is contributing to the tendency of you sinning then chop it off if your eye is contributing to the tendency of sinning then pluck it out now you know it doesn't take very long to create a visual in your mind of a literal understanding of that and i think we would all be on the same page in thinking man that's pretty harsh that's harsh stuff and if that was intended to be understood literally, then Christian bookstores today are kind of missing the boat, you know, because they are all about, you know, selling Bibles and Christian books and Christian T-shirts and stuff like that. But one of the, the um, items that they ought to be selling in these Christian bookstores are Christian hatchets and Christian ice picks and stuff like that, too. So people can, in a Christian way, you know, fulfill what it is that Jesus is talking about here. Well, that wasn't to be understood literally. But all the same, there is a very important point that Jesus is trying to get across. And instead of just saying, sin is really serious, so stay away from it. Okay? How much impact does that make in your life, you know? But then if, if someone says, if your foot's causing you to sin, hack it off. Or if your eye, pluck it out of its socket. Now, that has a bunch of impact, right? Because all of a sudden now you've got visuals to go along with it. Or how about this one in Luke chapter 6? Jesus said, why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank? in your own eye. And I looked up the word plank in some Greek dictionaries, and it seemed like, you know, multiple ones, you know, were making some comment along the lines of, don't think just of a two-by-four, think of a two-by-eight. I'm not sure exactly, you know, why they settled on that, but I found it in multiple uh, Greek dictionaries. So it was like, okay, so a plank bigger than a two-by-four, it's like a two-by-eight. says, how can you say to your brother, brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when you yourself fail to see the plank in your own eye. You hypocrite. First take the plank out of your own eye, and then you'll see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Now, this clearly is an exaggeration. At least in my life, you know, in the 43 years that I've been alive, um, I, <laughs> I have never seen someone walking around with a two-by-eight sticking out of their eye socket. It's just, you know, I, I mean, I've seen some things, but nothing even remotely close to that. And so it's almost cartoonish, you know, when you try to visualize this. You got a guy with a two-by-eight sticking out of their eye, but they see a piece of sawdust in someone else's eye, and they're saying, oh, let me help you with that. You got a problem there in your life, and it's obvious to all of us, and and, you know, it, so it, it's pretty clear Jesus is getting a point across here that, you know, this whole idea of hypocritical judging where you got some major issues going on in your life, but you're just choosing to ignore those and you're centering in on being a nitpicker, fault finder in other people's lives. Um, so he's using a hyperbole, you know, to get his point across. 
And it does get the point across. Here's another technique that Jesus uses. He uses questions. In fact, he uses a lot of questions. One source I looked at says that he asked 173 different questions. All right, I didn't add that up to double-check that. But anyway, there's a lot of questions that are found in Jesus' teaching. And one of the examples would be in Matthew chapter 22, um, he said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? This is when some of the religious leaders came to him, and their intent was not good. They were trying to trap Jesus, and so they asked the question, is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Now, they knew they had him coming and going. If Jesus said yes, then they knew that Jesus would lose credibility among his Jewish audience. Um, but if he said no, then he would be in hot water with the Romans. So they figured they, they certainly have got him on this. But instead, Jesus does something that kind of surprises them all. He says, well, show me a coin. And then he asks the question, whose likeness and description is this? And they said Caesar. And he said, give to Caesar what is Caesar's, give to God what is God's. And you can just see it now, the crowd that was there trying to trap him, kind of like knocked off balance a little bit. And, well, I didn't see that coming, you know. And they just tuck their tail and they walk away, you know, from that. But Jesus challenging them with a question. In, and part of what happens with, with a question is you're engaging people. You're getting them involved in what it is that, that you're going to be teaching and attempting to give some insight about. Here's another example, Mark chapter 8. Jesus questioned his disciples, saying to them, who do people say that I am? Again, you're engaging the people, and so they're, they're thinking. They're not just listening, and so they start answering by saying, well, some say you're Jeremiah, some say you're Elijah, some say uh, John the Baptist or one of the other prophets, and, and Jesus says, but who do you say that I am? And this is when Peter you know, gives his response. But it's a pretty critical question here. Who is Jesus? Who do you say, you know, that I am? And, and he was engaging them, drawing them in, in order to, and once Peter said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God, and he was like, bang, you hit it. You hit the nail on the head there. And, and so it really drove home in everyone's mind what the answer was, rather than Jesus just offering up the answer to begin with. Another question is Luke chapter 12. Which of you by worrying can add a single hour to his lifespan? He's talking about the subject, obviously, of worry here, and he's talking about how fruitless it is. It, it isn't beneficial. Any way you, you look at it, any angle you look at it from, it's not beneficial. Now, some might say, well, that's a rhetorical question. Well, all the same, you don't know it's a rhetorical question until you start processing it in your mind. And it's like, oh, okay, well, the answer is obvious you know, on that. It's a, a way of drawing people in and engaging people. And so Jesus followed it up by saying, if you can't even do a little thing like that, then why are you worrying about all this other stuff like food or clothing and things along those lines? But you see, he's using questions here. Questions are an effective teaching method. It stimulates critical thinking. It 
has a way of engaging people. Now, one of the favorite ways that Jesus had of teaching, and if you know anything at all about the biblical account, you know about this, and that is he frequently told stories. And parables, specifically. There are some 40 parables that are found in the Gospels. He used everyday life to drive home spiritual truth. For example, the parable of the sower, where he's talking about a guy that's, that's casting some seed. Well, people saw that. I mean, that, that was a part of everyday life. You see that sort of thing. In fact, many of the people that heard him say that can remember when they were doing that at a particular period of time in their life. And, and no matter how careful you are, some of the seed's going to land on hard you know, a path almost like a sidewalk. Some of it, you know, maybe is going to uh, land in, in some rocky, shallow soil. Some maybe in thorny, preoccupied soil. But, but hopefully, the majority of it's going to make it to the ideal soil where it's going to grow and it's, it's going to be fruitful. Well, Jesus wasn't talking about how you plant seed. He was talking about our hearts. And that was the point he wanted to get across and, and how how everybody's heart is represented, you know, like one of these soils. And so he used a creative way by telling a story to drive home a very important truth. Another one of Jesus' parables that is probably the best like and the best known of his parables is the prodigal son. You know, it involves a younger son that uh, um, is... is uh, um, pretty rude with his dad, you know, and kind of blows off his dad and goes out and squanders his inheritance and which he shouldn't have received, you know, that early anyway. Well, there would have been other ways that Jesus could have taught this. Jesus could have just, in driving home the point about how forgiving God is and how he will receive you back even after you have failed, he could have said something like, God loves you so much that he will welcome you back no matter how sinful you have been. Wouldn't that have driven home the point? I mean, that, that's, that's the, the bottom line, you know, of what this parable is all about. Yeah, but you know how that works, you know. When people aren't engaged, actively listening, then uh, things can kind of go in one ear and out the other ear, and you can miss some of this. And so Jesus chooses to tell a story about this rude younger son that blew off his family and partied away his inheritance and then basically came crawling back begging for mercy. But then his dad surprisingly you know, grabs him and hugs him and kisses him and throws this huge party to welcome him home. Now, you see, that is a story people are going to remember because it engages your emotions, you know, as you're hearing the story. And so Jesus, he told stories, and that, that was one of the reasons why, is that some of these stories do engage more than just our ears. It engages our emotions, and it makes, makes it all the more powerful. Here's a, another parable Jesus told, Matthew chapter 7, and it pretty much fills the screen here. But uh, he, he says, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the storms rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. 
But, and now he's going to tell the contrasting side of this, basically he's talking about a foolish man and a wise man. And yeah, I know he's, he's referencing building a house, but he's really not giving tips or instructions about constructing a residence, a house. He's talking about your life and how you're choosing to build your life and what is going to be the foundation of your life. There is nothing in this little parable that indicates there was any difference between the house of the foolish man and the house of the wise man. The difference comes in the foundation. And so when he starts talking about the wise man, he talks about, you know, he hears the word, or the foolish man, he hears the words, and he doesn't put them into practice, and he gets the same kind of storm. Trials and tribulations, hardships come into his life, but he has nothing to stand on, and before you know it, he crumbles. He falls underneath of it all. Well, the same sorts of trials and tribulations and hardships came to the first guy, but he was able to weather all of that because he had a solid foundation that was under him. So again, here we have him telling a story, um, but telling it in a way that would have engaged people and would have given people a much greater likelihood of remembering what it is that he was saying. You know, it's kind of like the old expression, a picture is worth a thousand words. And that's what he was doing, is he was giving them word pictures. And so he taught frequently in the form of parables. And it does. It has a way of driving it home. It has a way of making it more memorable. But you want to know what really set his teaching apart? you know, more than anything else. It wasn't so much the style of his teaching, although he did change that up a lot, and it's not limited to the three forms of teaching that, that I gave you. Those are just samples. What really set Jesus' teaching apart is that he taught as one having authority. This really made his teaching different. And this is what people noticed on more than one occasion. Because the rabbis, which is just a word for um, Jewish teachers back in that day, uh, and the scribes, who sometimes were referred to as teachers of the law, uh, those guys were all over the place. There were a dime a dozen. But Jesus, in the way that he presented truth, he did it in a different way. And so people keyed in on that. In Mark chapter 1, verse 22, it says the people were amazed at his teaching because he taught them as one who had authority, not as the teachers of the law. Or on another occasion in Matthew chapter 7, we read this. When Jesus had finished these words, the crowds were amazed at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one having authority and not as their scribes. It was part of the habit of the scribes, the rabbis, to, to add um, credibility to whatever it is they were teaching on, uh, to reference someone who at an earlier time had taught the same sort of stuff. You, you can imagine that, that Rabbi so-and-so is teaching on a particular topic, and then Rabbi so-and-so refers to Rabbi whatever, okay? 
who used to be a part of that synagogue, you know, 15, 20 years earlier. And so a large section of the older people that were in the synagogue, as soon as this rabbi refers to rabbi whatever, then all of a sudden people sit up a little straighter in their seat and it's just like, oh, oh, so what you're saying is the same thing that rabbi whatever used to say? Oh, now all of a sudden they're more receptive because they had a world of respect for rabbi whatever, even though, you know, it's been 15 years since he was teaching. Basically, what this is, is this is a form of name dropping that people did. It'd be like me standing up here and, and presenting a particular truth and interpretation of a passage of scripture. And, and then, you know, after I've said a few things about it, I said, you know, it's exactly like what Billy Graham used to always say, you know, five years ago. And there would be a segment of people that are in here being like, oh, what you're saying is right along the lines of Billy Graham, then then that must be valid. Or if I stood up here and I said, now listen, you need to understand such and such. And that's no different than what that old man that used to work on our staff, the Reverend Fogo, used to always say. <laughs> and then all of a sudden you're going to be just like, oh, well, if Reverend Fogo used to say that, then we know this has credibility. You know, it's just, it's just an older form of name dropping, you know, that uh, the, the rabbis and, and the teachers of the law, um, that they were engaged in. Well, Jesus didn't do that. That's the point. Jesus didn't do that. He didn't have to name drop in order to try to make any of his teaching more valid or more powerful. Instead, what we read from Jesus in his teachings are things like this. You have heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery in his heart. It's like, okay, so he says, you have heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. Well, that's a quote of the Old Testament, right? The law. And then Jesus says, but I say to you, he doesn't drop anyone else's name. I say to you, see, he's coming across with authority here. Or in that similar passage there, he says, you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. No name dropping involved in all of that. And this made an impact on people because this was different. On one occasion, the Jewish leaders got kind of irritated at the temple guard because they had put the temple guard under some instructions of when you cross paths with Jesus, take him into custody. But um, later when they did bump into Jesus, they didn't take him into custody. Here's that passage, John chapter 7, verse 45. When the temple guards returned without having arrested Jesus, the leading priests and Pharisees demanded, why didn't you bring him in? Okay, so they're irritated by this. But look at what their response was. We have never heard anyone speak like this, the guards responded. You see, without saying it, they were saying it. He was speaking with authority. This was unlike anything that we've ever heard before. 
All right, there's one more talking point that, that I want to make before we're done with, with uh, what, what it is that I was wanting to cover today. Perhaps the best example of Jesus' teaching is the Sermon on the Mount. This is the name that was given this particular portion of the Scripture uh, 1,500 years ago, approximately. A fellow by the name of Augustine back in the 4th and 5th century, he referred to this section of Scripture, which all involves Jesus' teaching as the Sermon on the Mount. And apparently people liked it because it stuck for all of these centuries. It begins with these words. When he saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. Then he began to teach them. And it includes all the rest of chapter 5, all of chapter 6, and all of chapter 7. It's the longest recorded teaching message in the Bible that Jesus gave. Now, I believe Jesus gave longer messages than this, but they're just not, it, there's not a record, you know, of all, because there were some days they taught all day and then, you know, then it led to the feeding of a multitude because he didn't want to send them home hungry. So I think there were some, some other occasions where Jesus probably taught longer. But this is the longest recorded one. And it is a rich passage of Scripture. And what I want to do is I want to make it an assignment for you today. All right? This is your assignment this week is to take Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7, those three chapters, and in one sitting, read all the way through it. And I want you to do that not just once, but at least twice. Hopefully three times this week. Not all in a, in a row like you just hammer it all out in an hour's time, but spread it out a little bit. You know, read chapters 5, 6, and 7 in one sitting, and then either later in the day or the next day, read chapters 5, 6, and 7 in a sitting, and then do it again. But before you start reading it, uh, pray about it. Pray that God will open your eyes and open your heart uh, to receive, you know, the message, to be receptive. If there's something in particular that you're going to be reading, that God will give you a nudge, you know, that, hey, I meant this for you. What is being said right now? I meant this for you. Be open, be receptive you know, to what it is the Lord is saying. So that, that's your assignment this week. It's an assignment that, that you know, is very doable um, for all of us that are here. It's one of the most famous pieces of teaching by Jesus that is found in the Bible. It's like a manifesto of how to live a Christian life, a code of ethics it's kind of like what Jesus says here is like, okay, are you serious about wanting to be a follower of mine? All right, then this is what I want to see in your life. This is what it involves. Now, I want to prepare you when you're reading it. A lot of what you're going to find in these three chapters is countercultural. It kind of goes in the opposite direction of what people normally think, at least in our culture here in America. For example, just, just a, a couple of things. In the early part of, of chapter 5, the very beginning of it, Jesus says stuff like blessed, and the word blessed uh, can be translated a couple of other ways. It, it, you can use the word happy. You can use the word fortunate. 
Those are both good words that capture, you know, uh, part of what the word blessed is communicating. So, so it says, blessed are the poor in spirit. And it's just like right away, you think, wait a minute. Happy are the poor? Since when? You know, aren't those who are happy, those who have the wherewithal to buy whatever they want, to go wherever they want, to do whatever they want? See, it kind of goes in the face of it, but Jesus starts off all of this teaching with fortunate, happy are the poor in spirit. And then there's a response phrase that, that he gives that. And then he turns right around and he makes another statement that, that is equally um, like startling or awkwardly stated. It says, blessed, fortunate, are those who mourn. Well, that doesn't make sense. Happy are those who mourn. Shouldn't it say happy are those who smile? Happy are those who laugh a lot? But it says happy are those who mourn. So, you know, it kind of goes in a different, or happy are the meek. That sounds pretty weak. Wouldn't it be happy are the assertive? Happy are the strong and the powerful who can demand their way and 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 enforce it happy are the merciful it's like man you don't want to be too soft in life people are going to walk all over you see you you can look at each one of these and then you kind of look at what what in our culture what some of the connotations that are attached to those statements and and what we would think of being more, well, I would be happier if this were the case or that were the case. And so he says some things that kind of fly contrary to what, what we would normally think of. Or, or he, he goes as far in these three chapters and he says, if someone strikes you on one cheek, turn to him the other also. How many of you, when you've done a little bit of channel surfing, have come across um, this really weird competition of people slapping each other. Have you seen that? I mean, seriously. I mean, they got this powder and stuff on their hands, and, and they're supposed to hang on to this thing and just brace themselves. And the guy right across this little narrow, narrow table, you know, he just, he just he measures everything up, right, with the guy's cheek. And then he backs up like this, Boom! Just smacks the guy. How many of you have seen that? You, all right. So, all right. So I'm not the only one. I thought I don't have a weird channel on my TV. So, so uh, you know. And if you haven't ever seen it, you you can always go to uh, YouTube and you can watch it on there. It, it's ridiculous. I mean, these guys. Sometimes these guys get knocked out for obvious reasons. You know. And you got to think that some of them are getting concussions or dislocated jaws, or, or maybe blowing out an eardrum, or, or whatever the case is. But anyway, after a person recovers and staggers, you know, under it, then they get to return, you know, the favor. And so when I think of this passage, I mean, that's one of the things I think about. But Jesus says, well, if someone strikes you on one cheek, go ahead and brace yourself and let them strike the other also. You mean I don't get my turn? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's, there's no revenge. There's not room for revenge in this. 
And that's the point that Jesus is trying to get across. Someone insults you, you don't fight fire with fire. You don't insult them back. But that is the, the human inclination that is within us. You know, it just seems to be embedded in our DNA that, that you know, we, we give them a taste of their own medicine. But Jesus, in this passage, is saying, no, you don't do that. Or he, he goes on to say that, um, go the extra mile. Well, if someone forces you to go one mile, go the extra mile. Now, you probably already got somewhat of a good understanding of what that is. That means go above and beyond, do extra, and you would be right in that. But there was a very tangible way that people saw this and understood this back in the first century. During the days of Roman occupation is that Rome, they had a basic rule that, that all of their soldiers and everybody um, had to follow, and that was you could force a citizen in the occupied land to pick up and carry your gear from point A to point B as long as it was, as it was no longer than a mile, a certain distance. There was a reason why from some of the major hubs, communities, they, the Jewish people, created mile markers along the paths, the roads, is so that if you were interrupted from whatever it is you were doing and you had to carry, you know, some Roman soldier's gear, as soon as you got to that next mile marker, you could just drop it because you did not want to take one step extra. Now you could return to whatever it was you were doing before you were interrupted. But here Jesus appears on the scene, which, you know, a good percentage of the people are hoping that he's going to be the one that's going to spearhead um, the revolt against the Romans. But Jesus is standing there in this passage of Scripture, and he's saying, if you are forced to go one mile, volunteer to go the extra mile. And so the picture all of a sudden you see there is you come up to that mile marker and that soldier is totally expecting you to set all of his gear down, but instead you turn to him and say, how about I take it another mile? And they're like, okay, because <laughs> they had never experienced that before. But this was part of Jesus' teaching. Jesus, in this passage, he talks about don't get all caught up in showboating your faith. You, you don't get to where you go find a street corner or a really public visible spot in order to pray just so that everyone will see and they'll see how religious and how devout you really are. Instead, you go to a closet somewhere and you pray in secret to your father who hears in secret. You don't showboat your faith. Or if you're giving, you don't blow a trumpet. And just so you know, when we dismiss services a little bit later, um, I know I'll be out in the entry area when you're walking out, but these doors are all going to be open. And when you go past those offering boxes, if any of you blows a whistle or a horn or something, I'll hear it. And uh, I'll know you weren't listening to the sermon today. So he says, don't be drawing attention to yourself by, you know, oh, it's my turn to give. All right, let me pull out my wallet. And you got an intentional Velcro wallet that can rip open real slowly and then pull that out, <clears throat> you know, and get everybody's attention as you're, you're giving. Jesus addresses that very thing in these chapters. You don't be showboating 
your faith. When you pray, you don't get all caught up with a whole bunch of fancy wording and impressive words. Instead, just talk to God. Say, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Holy be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. Give us this day our daily bread. Just pray what's on your heart, the basic things. You don't try to be overly flowerful or, or impressive in the ears of other people because that's not what it's about. And we looked already at the other passage about that nitpicky approach of being a fault finder, of always being the one to, to criticize and point out the failings and the shortcomings of people around you. It's in this section of Scripture that Jesus deals with that and says, don't be that person. See, he's saying, if you're going to be a follower of mine, this is what it looks like. This is the way that I want you to approach living your life. You see, you have a choice. You have a choice as to what you're going to build your life on. Are you going to build it on the teachings of our Lord? Or are you going to kind of let that be brushed aside in one ear, out the other, and then just do whatever you want to do or whatever most of your friends are doing. Well, as a result, when you experience the inevitable, the setbacks, the adversity, the hardships that all of us sooner or later will encounter in life, uh, it'll become evident exactly what the foundation is that you're building your life on. And that passage is found at the very tail end of the Sermon on the Mount. After he taught all of these details, then he basically ends with that passage. So you got an assignment this week, not just once, but at least twice, maybe three times. Read through all of this in one sitting and, and just be sensitive and open to what it is that the Lord is saying. And you might, you might be reading something that's just like, oh, boy, that really goes against human nature and all. Well, then you'll be faced with a choice. What are you going to do about that? You know, are you just going to kind of, nah, I think instead I'll just do what most of my friends do. There's a wide gate that leads to that road, and a lot of the people you know are traveling on that road. But instead, what the Lord would prefer is you go through the narrow gate, and you travel the narrow road that not very many people are traveling. That, too, is found in this section of Scripture, chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. So give, give God that opportunity to speak to your heart through the teachings of our Lord. We're going to have our time of communion now. And so as we prepare for that, and if you don't have the communion cup and all, you still got a moment to go and get get one of those. But this is this is a time when when we rifle in, we really focus on what it is that the Lord has done for us, the sacrifice that he made on our behalf. When you take the bread and you eat it, you remember his body that was nailed to the cross. When you take the cup and you drink it, you remember the blood that was shed on your behalf. And while you're reflecting on that and and expressing your gratefulness, your gratitude to the Lord for that. 
um, I want to encourage you to ask the Lord to reveal to you, based on the way that you're approaching living life, what foundation is it that you're building your life on? Which foundation is it? Is it the rock? Or is it something faulty like sand? And just converse with the Lord and ask for him to reveal what he sees in your life. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for today. I thank you for the opportunity we have to be able to gather together as a body of believers and, and to spend some time just reconnecting with one another and worshiping and lifting our voices together um, as we exalt you. And Father, I'm thankful for the time to open your word and the freedom that we have in this country to be able to do just that, to be able to meet in a public way and, and to be able to study your word together. But might it all be done for more reason than just increasing head knowledge. Lord, I pray that when you look into our hearts, you see us seeking you, wanting to glorify you, to live for you. And so we ask your assistance and the conviction and guidance of your spirit in doing just that. Thank you for loving us. Of that, there is no doubt. What Jesus did when he went to the cross on our behalf, we will be reflecting and celebrating on that for the rest of time and eternity. We thank you for that. But might the way we go about living our life show how thankful we really are. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. Thank you.